invite your attention to the chapter we read earlier, Isaiah chapter 63, page 759 in the Chapel Bible. Isaiah chapter 63, and I'll read again verse 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra, this that is glorious in his apparel, travelling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Now, this is one of the clearest of the Old Testament prophecies concerning our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The Lord is announced in the previous chapter in verse 11, Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. And then we find Isaiah speaking on behalf of the church of Christ, asking the question, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra? And the answer comes at the end of the verse. Christ responds himself by saying, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So the church is asking the question with wonder and surprise, and Christ makes a direct response to the question. But why is Edom mentioned, and what is the meaning of Bosra? Why are these terms and these names important? Well, Edom, of course, refers to the Edomites, to the descendants of Esau. Remember that Esau was born with a very red complexion. Edom means red. So if you like, the red people, the Edomites, and Bosra was one of their chief cities. You can look at a map for yourselves, and you notice in the uh, southeasterly part of the land of Israel, over towards the east, you'll find the land of Edom, bordering with Moab. And the Edomites were filled with hostility and bitterness and resentment towards the children of Israel. So here in this verse, the Edomites then represent an ungodly, hostile world that hates Christ, that hates the truth, and hates the people of God. And here is Christ coming into this kind of world, this sin-sick world, this world out of fellowship with God. He condescends to come into this lower world so stained by sin. And Eden then typifies the world in which we live, the, the kingdom of darkness that... Uh, overrule so much of the nations of the earth. This world lies in wickedness, the word of God tells us. Now there are two principal thoughts in this chapter. One is God's punishment of sin and sinners. The other is God's salvation for his people. He will punish his enemies, he will save his people. These two thoughts are brought together in verse 4. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart for his enemies and for his people, and the year of my redeemed is come. In some ways, it's quite similar to the book of Revelation, where those two things are brought out together. Again and again, there's this testimony of the salvation of God's people. He loves them with an everlasting love. Christ has shed his precious blood for them. But there's opposition. There's enmity that rises up against the one true church, a persecuting force and a hostile people against Christ and all that love him and believe upon him. But the Lord is going to deal with his enemies. They will perish ultimately from his presence. 
when he comes again with great power to this world, he'll be seated upon an eternal throne and the ungodly will be speechless. They will have nothing to say and they'll know that their judgment is just and true and righteous, an everlasting judgment, but for God's people, an everlasting salvation in an everlasting kingdom. So here then is the picture of Christ, a mighty warrior, going forth to battle on behalf of his people. Notice his majesty and his dignity. This is the picture that you find here in this passage. And surely, if nothing else, this passage shows to us something of our need of salvation. If Christ is prepared to come into this world, having left the everlasting happiness of heaven, if he's willing to do that, it means surely sin is a terrible thing if Christ must come in person to this world to provide a deliverance and a means of rescue. Well, we're going to notice three things from this verse. First of all, Christ's authority to save. He is mighty to save because he has authority. He's mighty to save because he has power and ability. He's mighty to save because he's willing to save. All those three things are very important. So first of all, he is mighty to save because he has authority. Now, there are a number of reasons why this is true. He has authority, first of all, because he is the Son of God. He's equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. There's one God, but three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're equal, co-eternal, and same in nature and power and glory. Christ then has authority to say because he is the Son of God and no way inferior to his heavenly Father. Remember he said in John chapter 10, I and my Father are one. Only God can save. Nothing less than this would do to save guilty sinners. We have sinned against God and God himself in his infinite grace and mercy has made a way whereby sin can be forgiven. So Christ has authority to save because he is the Son of God. Furthermore, he has authority because he has been commissioned to do this very task. Each of the three persons of the Trinity have various functions, if that's the right way of explaining it, various offices, and Christ has been commissioned by the Father to come and provide salvation. Notice the language of Psalm 89, where God the Father says concerning his Son, I have laid help upon one that is mighty, nothing less than his mighty uh, dear Son, the one that he loves and has love for all eternity. And Christ, as it were, responds by saying, these aren't the words of Psalm 89, but here am I, send me. That expresses the willingness of Christ to come to be the Saviour. Notice the words of Psalm 40. Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. The willingness of Christ to come into this lower world. And he has been commissioned to do so. Furthermore, he is mighty to save because he has paid the price of sin. He has been authorized to deal with the issue of sin. And he has done all that is necessary to deal with that issue. He's made amends to that broken law that we have broken to pieces. Moses throwing those tables of stone and breaking them to pieces is a picture of what we have done to the holy law of God. 
in thought, word or deed. But Christ has paid the price of sin. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. He is the substitute for sinners, the sin bearer. He bore our sins in his own body to the tree, the apostle Peter reminds us. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And on another occasion, the apostle Paul says, when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. Can you begin to see why Christ has been given authority to save? Yes, he's God's son. He's been commissioned. He's paid the price of sin. But furthermore, he has triumphed over sin. He has triumphed over Satan, the arch enemy of God and God's people. This mighty foe, yet remember Christ is almighty and has proved victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell. Christ could say, the risen Saviour confessed, all power is given to me, both in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And the Lord has been given this power because he's the risen Saviour, and he has power to forgive sins. What do you think of that parable, or rather not a parable, but a, a miracle the Lord Jesus performed? And it's described for us there in Matthew chapter 9, where a man was sick of the palsy. He was paralyzed. He couldn't bring himself to the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's brought by others. The Lord Jesus pronounced forgiveness to that man. And people start to murmur, who is this that says he can forgive sins? And do you remember what happened next? The Lord Jesus called that man to rise up from his bed of affliction as a walking demonstration that Christ has power on earth to forgive sins. Now, I don't know, there may be someone here tonight and you are concerned about your soul. This is no light matter with you. You know you're a sinner. You know you're guilty and you can't save yourself. But you doubt, perhaps, whether you will ever find forgiveness. Well, do you believe that this man was raised from his bed? and was able to walk unaided? If you believe that, then you must also believe that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. There are walking witnesses, as it were, in this chapel tonight who have proved the power of Christ to forgive sins. Be encouraged, guilty sinner. There is forgiveness with God that he may be feared. For thou, Lord, art good, the psalmist said, and ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy, unto all them that call upon him. So Christ is mighty to say because he has been authorized to provide salvation. But we must move on swiftly to notice, secondly, Christ is mighty to say because he has power and ability to save. Notice the wording in verse 1, who is this traveling in the greatness of his strength, the, the ability of Christ to save. Now, regarding the authority of Christ, which we've been considering already, you think of a fireman who has passed all his exams. He's authorized to enter a building that's on fire to save those that are ready to perish. 
Now, he may be authorized, but the situation may arise where such is the danger that he dare not enter because the building is about to collapse. He's authorized, but he doesn't have power or ability to go and save the perishing. But with our Lord Jesus Christ, he has both authority and power to save. There's no situation too difficult for our Lord Jesus Christ to intervene and to deliver. Now, there's a number of reasons why we need this power of Christ. First of all, to break our stubborn hearts. That's where we are by nature. We are stubborn when it comes to spiritual things. You think of the walls of Jericho in the Old Testament. They were straightly shut up. It was a well-protected city and all the gates were bolted and barred. They thought themselves as secure as possible. But those walls are going to come down by the mighty hand of God through Joshua as Joshua obeyed the voice of the Lord and they encompassed the city again and again and again. And on the last time they shouted with a great shout and the walls of the city fell down flat. And the heavenly Joshua, our Lord Jesus Christ, has power to intervene in people's lives and to overcome the stubbornness of our hearts. Remember John Bunyan. There were certainly strivings of conscience with him at the beginning, but he sought to stifle his conscience because of spiritual stubbornness. And so he played the game of tip cat on the uh, Elstow Green. And you remember a voice came to his conscience powerfully, almost like an audible voice. Will you leave your sins and go to heaven? Or will you have your sins and go to hell? And it's a turning point in his life, wasn't it? The Lord was intervening. His Jericho walls were falling down, as it were. Has that happened to you? Has God so worked in your heart that he's broken your stubbornness? And now you are meekened by the Spirit of God, ready to listen and ready to hear. We need this mighty Saviour also to overcome unbelief. You think of Saul of Tarsus. Why was it that he was so determined to stamp out this new movement, the people of God, the believers of Jesus Christ, the new New Testament church? Why was it he was so angry and so determined? Because of unbelief. Unbelief. The terrible power of unbelief. He was in the grip of his unbelief. But the Lord had to deal with that. Here he is going to Damascus. He has letters in his pocket of authority to arrest believers and to imprison them and see they were put to death. And there on that Damascus road, the Lord met him. He was were thrown to the ground and he was immediately humbled. The Lord overcame his unbelief. And here, as a humbled sinner, we find him praying, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? We need this mighty Saviour with his power to save, because we need our eyes to be opened. Think of the blind man recorded for us in John chapter 9. He was blind from birth. It was a terrible condition. But the Lord Jesus came that way and made him to see. That was the first miracle, a, a physical deliverance, a providential deliverance. He was now able to see what a wonderful thing that was. But when he started to speak up for Christ before the others, they threw him out of the synagogue. Christ came to him again. And then another miracle took place. He asked him the question. Christ asked him, 
Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He didn't know how to respond. Who is the Son of God? was his response. Christ made himself known to him as the Son of God, and he believed, and he worshipped. You may know whether you are a believer, because if you're a believer, you'll delight to worship the Lord. It'll be the natural response of your heart. Guilty sinner though you are in yourself, unworthy though you are, you will delight to worship the Lord and to exalt his name. That's what happened to this blind man. The power of Christ opened his blind eyes spiritually as well as naturally. Also, we need Christ and his power, he who is mighty to save, because our ears need to be unstopped. I, some years ago, I was asked to preach at a place in the New Forest, on the edge of the New Forest, a place called Lanford Wood Mission. And what is rather striking about this place is that as you approach it, you enter two very large pillars which were used for the grand entrance of a great estate. And you don't usually find mission halls among the estates of the landed gentry. But there's a rather interesting history behind it. Lady Ashburton used to live on that estate back in the 1800s. One day she heard of a gospel campaign coming that way. And she decided to go with some of her ladies-in-waiting to go and mock the preacher, to make fun of what he said. And so off she went with her, her ladies, but something happened she didn't expect. Something reached her heart. Her blind eyes were opened, and her deaf ears were unstopped. It was the means of completely changing her life. One day when she was travelling into her estate, in her carriage, she noticed a number of people entering a farmhouse. She wanted to know why that was. She was told that they were Christians and they were meeting for a Bible study. So she got out the carriage and joined them. And then she decided to build them a mission hall. And so it's been there ever since. And still the gospel of God's saving grace is preached in that place. But it goes back to this, the power of Christ, he who is mighty to save, who opens blind eyes and unstops deaf ears. Remember Mary of Bethany. Her ears were opened by the Lord. We find her at the end of John chapter, sorry, Luke chapter 10. We find her sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, hearing the gracious words that fell from his lips. She was drinking every word in, as it were. She was listening with great attention. She was learning. She was progressing in spiritual things. She found a love and desire towards Christ and the wonderful truths that he proclaimed. Her ears had been opened spiritually. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, when such miracles of grace take place. Can you begin to see why this is so significant? He who is mighty to save. Yes, he has authority to save, but he has power and ability to save, to break our stubborn hearts, to overcome unbelief, to open our blind eyes, to unstop our deaf ears, and furthermore, to deliver us from Satan's power. Satan's power. Remember the passage we read earlier in Mark's Gospel? Legion, he's known as, because he was possessed of so many evil spirits. He was in a wretched, miserable condition. People tried to tame him, tried to chain him down with shackles and bolts and pins and so on, but he just broke them. Such was the terrible power that he was possessed of. 
He was beyond human help. That's where we are spiritually. We may not be like him, thankfully, in that sense, but we are beyond human help. No man can save your soul. Only Christ has power to overcome all these spiritual obstacles in our hearts and in our minds. John Bunyan does a very good job, doesn't he, in his holy war, describing the town of Mansoul. I can't give you all the details, but you can read it for yourselves. But remember that the point comes where the town has been overcome by Diabolus. He's there, seated in Hart Castle, where he feels secure. That blessed Prince Emmanuel, our Lord Jesus Christ, comes with bow and urges and comes with his men to retake the city. It's a fascinating account, isn't it? He's going to drive Satan from Hart Castle. He's going to win the town of Mansoul for himself again. And that's what the Lord is doing over and over again, as this one and that one and another one are converted by the grace of God. We need this mighty Saviour because we need to be delivered from the love of this world. Think of Zacchaeus. He was obsessed with earthly things. He was callous and hard-hearted, didn't care if he robbed others to line his own pockets. But the Lord Jesus intervened in Zacchaeus' life and came into his home, but more importantly, came into his heart. Salvation came that day to the home of Zacchaeus. And when you read that passage, you can see how quickly things start to change in his outlook. He starts to form a plan in his mind of how he make restitution for his extortion and his daylight robbery. We need the Lord Jesus Christ, the mighty Saviour, to deliver us from the love of this present evil world. Let us be honest about this. By nature, we love this world. It has an alluring charm, doesn't it? It appears to be so inviting, and especially so perhaps when we are much younger. There's great danger for teenagers to feel a great attraction to the things of this world. Beware of its subtle dangers. We need this Saviour to deliver us from the love of this present world. We need this Saviour because we need to be saved from everlasting condemnation, everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. William Gadsby was a great preacher in his day. He's a man of a very vigorous ministry. And you can pick up something of his style in some of his hymns. And in one of his hymns he says this, Mighty to save. He saves from hell, a mighty saviour suits me well. Do you feel like that? You need this mighty saviour to suit to save you? Does he suit your needs? You realise your helplessness, your lostness, your ruin, your undone, your beyond human recovery. You need then this saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've noticed his authority to save his power to save, but thirdly and lastly, his willingness to save. It's all very well someone being authorized to do something and having the ability to do something, but they might not be willing. But our Lord Jesus Christ did all three things. He's authorized. He has the power and he is more than willing to save. He waits to be gracious. He is full of tender compassion. He declared himself to be meek and lowly in heart as he invited sinners to come to himself with open arms. There's nowhere else to go but to Jesus Christ for salvation. Why do you delay? 
Why do you hesitate? Why do you put these things off? There's a saviour who is willing and gracious to save. There's a great hymn that's been sung by many, many people down through the years. A great gospel hymn. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is willing, doubt no more. He hears the cry of the penitent, those who are genuinely sorry for their sins. That's why we have the account of the the publican, the tax collector, who came up to the temple to pray. He knew what sort of life he'd lived. He was conscious of it. He was aware of his guiltiness, how it defrauded others. And not only was he conscious that he'd sinned against others, he knew he'd sinned against the Lord. That's the worst thing of all, isn't it? We've sinned against the Lord. And all he could do was to smite upon his breast. That's where the trouble was. And he prayed, God be merciful to me, a sinner. In contrast, the Pharisee, he didn't really pray at all. It's just a a boast of all the good things he thought he'd done and all the bad things he thought he hadn't done. And he despised and looked down upon this publican. But who was it went away forgiven? The publican and not the Pharisee. That's how it's always been. It's the guilty sinner who cries out for God's mercy who finds mercy because Christ is not only able to save but he is willing to save. Well, are you saved then by the grace of God? This is the the important question. We must come to this point, mustn't we? Are you saved by the grace of God? Has the Lord intervened in your life? Has he turned you around? Has he awakened you to spiritual things? Do you repent of the guilt of your sin? Do you realize you have sinned against an almighty, gracious God and you are accountable to him? And do you realize there's a saviour who is willing to save? Have you bent the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ? If you haven't done, I exhort you and counsel you this very night to do so. Find a quiet place where you can turn to the Lord and be alone. And the Lord will hearken, the Lord will hear, and he will save. He saved numerous others just like you. And he can save you from the guilt of your transgressions and your sins. When I was a Sunday school teacher, sometimes we would sing this hymn. How solemn the question. With me is it well? Am I saved by God's grace from my sin? Are my steps now directed to heaven or hell? Let me search for the answer within. What an important question that is. Are you saved from your sins? Now, if you were to go to Bristol, to the uh, road called Horse Fair, you will find a large building, which in fact is the oldest Methodist church in the country. And at the front of the building, you will find a life-size statue of Charles Wesley. He has an open Bible in one hand, the other arm is raised as if he's preaching maybe to a large congregation, which he often did. But at the bottom on the pedestal is written these words, Oh, let me commend my Saviour to you. That was the testimony of Charles Wesley over and over again. And I say to you tonight, let me commend the Lord Jesus Christ to you. He is the Saviour who has come with this express purpose of saving sinners like you. 
He delights to save. He delights to have mercy. The Puritans used to speak of the mercy of God as his darling attribute. He loves to show mercy to guilty sinners. Don't hide from him. Don't go away and harden your heart. If perhaps in some way the light is starting to shine in your mind, don't turn to worldly things. Don't try and put these things off. We can't call a day our own. We know not what a day may bring forth. You need to be saved. You need to be in this assured knowledge that your sins, though they may be many, are all forgiven. And the Lord has provided one remedy alone for the malady of sin. And so the hymn writer puts it, O ye needy, come and on his grace depend. Well, may you come to know this great blessing for yourselves. I that speak in righteousness, Christ says, mighty to save. May God bless his word to you tonight. We're going to conclude by singing the hymn 593. 593. Jesus is a mighty saviour. Helpless souls have here a friend. He has borne their misbehaviour and his mercy knows no end. O ye helpless, come and on his grace depend. 593. Thank you.